Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guides Network radio show with your host Mark Chatterton. Tonight we are pleased to welcome Peter Owen Jones, a Church of England parish priest who just also happens to be a television presenter of religious-based programmes. Many of you will recognise Peter from such programmes as Around the World in 80 Faiths and Extreme Pilgrim, which have been broadcast on BBC Two. Peter has led an interesting life attending boarding school in England and then relocating to Australia, working in the advertising industry before changing his lifestyle completely to become a Church of England vicar. So welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you very much. Okay, I'll start off um, just going back to your past, because I understand that you left school at age 16 and ended up in Australia, where you got into advertising. Could you tell us a little bit about how that happened and what your life was like then? I was at a, um, I was at an English boarding school, and um, I just, I just from about the age of thirteen or fourteen, I began to understand that uh, the direction that I was being sort of groomed for uh, wasn't the direction that I was, I felt comfortable with, and wasn't the direction I wanted to go in as an individual, and that eventually sort of culminated in me sort of taking a very positive decision. So I sort of one evening left that school and I hitched home and um, climbed in through an upstairs window. There was no one else there. And then in the morning, the school phoned and said that because I'd done what I'd done, I'd I'd been expelled. Um, And so in a sense, that was probably quite a good thing. I think most people would regard that as a very bad thing. And that was a good thing. Um, my family weren't obviously too chuffed about what had happened, and so they suggested I went to Australia, where they hoped um, a year or so on a ranch would sort of straighten me out. Um, and in some ways it did. How long were you actually in Australia for? I was in Australia for a year. A year? Um, yeah, so... I, came, I, I came back when I was yeah, 17, nearly 18. Right. So was it a few years before you got into advertising? At once yes, you got I back? came back and then I... I, I I tried to uh, I tried to take some A levels, but I'd gone pretty feral by then, and uh, that really didn't work at all. So then I I I, I went back to farming, uh, which I've I've always been a country boy. So I I started working on farms, and um, I was I milked, and I was a shepherd, and um, and then after about four years of that, and I was in bands, and I ran a disco, and you know just general general colourful stuff. And then after that, I went out to London and got a job in the advertising industry, starting off as a messenger boy. And, uh, and then I was in London for a while after that. Okay. So from what I understand, you've been a, a vicar in the Church of England for the past 18 years. Mm. Yeah. Um, yes, I have, yes. Yeah. What were the circumstances that led you to the Church of England, and how have you found it since then? <laughs> um <laughs> The circumstances were really, I mean, I, I'd sort of been experiencing a calling since my sort of mid-teens, really. And I thought that this was down to my imagination and nothing else. My lifestyle I had nothing in common with any Christian values, and there was no recognizable Christian morality at the core of it. And so I just thought this was just completely fanciful. Um, but it just would not leave me alone and became more and more insistent in my 20s. Uh, and then eventually, I was always very clear that it was the calling was to uh, rather strangely become a Church of England priest, and um, 
and then in my twenties, I went to I went to see someone, and they rather uh, scarily agreed that this was happening. And eventually, I ended up in theological college in Cambridge, and um, latterly was ordained and um, took up a curacy on the fence. Uh, but I mean, I had no idea what the Church of England was like. Um, I had a very romantic view of of country ministry, and I've always been pretty clear about the fact that I always wanted to be a priest in the countryside. Uh, and I had a ridiculously romantic view about sort of butterflies and sugar lumps and, and this was going to be a gentle life. I had no idea how bruising and how very, very difficult uh, being a parish priest actually is. And um, it came as, as quite a shock, uh, those first three years in a parish on my own, about really, really how difficult it is holding Holding that intention with your faith um, is is a real challenge for anybody. So, would you say um, you're fairly settled now with, within the Church of England um, after all these years, or do you still, do you still <laughs> um, feel restless at all? Yeah, I mean, I feel continually restless, really, and um, it's very easy. In some ways, you know, joining an institution is very easy because if you can adopt the mannerisms of the institution, and whenever I see lots of priests on television or, you know, if I watch Songs of Praise or if I, you know, happen to go to a meeting where they're full of priests, I'm sort of, it's like, it's like being in a room full of, you know, people, lots of, lots of priests have very successfully adopted the mannerisms of the church thing and the mannerisms of being a priest. And they've sort of slotted into that role and that's fine. And I'm not criticizing that. But I've never been able to do that, uh, and I've, I've chosen not to do that, uh, probably more out of vanity than anything else. Um, and so it's not, a, it's not an easy relationship. I'm not, sort of, I'm not fully confident in the manner in which the church is presented, and I don't think the church is, w- would, would be fully confident in me. But the Church of England has always sort of made room for its eccentrics and its shouters and its doubters. And, and and that, in a sense, that degree of tolerance and that degree of fluidity, uh, I have since discovered, you know, it is, is, is worth so much and, and needs to be celebrated. Okay, for the past few years, you've obviously got involved in broadcasting. How did that come about in your life? Um, I, I'd obviously written a couple of books. I wrote a book about what going through theological college was actually really like. And after that, another book came out about my first year in parish life. And um, the Church of England, um, the BBC were looking um, to follow a priest around for um, a country a country vicar around for a while. They were making a documentary called The Power and the Glory. And um, so they went to the Church of England and said, you know, we'd like to you know, have you got any country priests? And they went, yes, yes, we've got 10 specially trained country priests. And the director went down and met them, and um, they weren't really what he was looking for. And very fortunately, or unfortunately, someone gave him the book that I'd just written, and then he came down and saw me. And then we started filming a couple of weeks later. And then that led on to um, led on to a series called The Battle for Britain's Soul. And then after that, there was another one, uh, and then extreme programming around the world in 80 face and how to live a simple life. I mean, I thought this was going to be a flash in the pan and, and it would, if it lasted six months, great. If it lasted six weeks, great. I had no idea that it would 
it would sort of go to the levels and the places that it's gone to, and I'm immensely grateful for that. Do you find when you're travelling about, people recognise you and start talking with you and, and so on? Yes, everywhere, on the bus, yeah. on the train. Yes, all the time, and that's um, that's an incredible privilege. And um, yes, it's something it's something that I've never got used to. And you know, the mailbox is always full. And um, I think it's what they call um, celebrity. Yeah. Dare I say that <laughs> horrid, horrid yeah. word? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to talk a bit about the um, around the world in eighty face program now. Sure. You sort of went on a world tour. How long did it actually take? Was it all done in one continuous go, or did you sort of take, you know, go to different parts of the world at different times of the year and so on? Yeah, no, it was done in nine goes. We would sort of go away for five weeks um, and then come back and have a week or so to rest, and then off we go again um, for another five-week stint. Uh, so it was done in sort of nine, nine, nine batches um, over a period of probably about 12 months, all in all. And um, it was the ride of my life. Yeah, yeah. Obviously experiencing all these faiths, were there mm. any that you thought, oh, I quite like this faith, I could easily leave the Church of England and start believing in that? Did you have any experiences of that at all? No, I sort of, as I, the more, the, the more I saw of other faiths, the more, I, the more I began to understand the great strengths of my own tradition. Um, you know, rather strangely, you know, the grass isn't greener on the other side. It, if you get to the other side, it just enables you to see how green the grass is on the side you've just left. Um, I think the faith that I admired the most was, was the, the Jain faith, uh, based uh, at Angola in India, uh, which decrees uh, complete non-violence to all living creatures. And also the Bishnoi in India, who... Um, who again uh, have a policy of nonviolence as well to to most of creation, uh, and it was those faiths that I found great solace in and great hope in for humanity's future. Um, I don't think the monotheistic faiths, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, really have a very good record in terms of um, our relationship with the environment. And I think it's that question. Uh, how are we to be human within the context of all the other life on this planet? It's that question which will need to be answered. Uh, it needs to be answered urgently, and I think the monotheistic faiths need to begin really to to start to find a way uh, to express that. They, have, they haven't done so very well uh, thus far. Okay, what about the other extreme? Were there any faiths that you were really repulsed by or horrified by or anything like that? Yeah, I was repulsed and horrified by voodoo, uh, by the voodoo faith uh, in Benin in Africa, uh, on the west coast of Africa. Um, I saw nothing other than darkness there. And, um, you know, it's very easy to characterize um, voodoo as being, you know, this sort of, you know, something having a doll that you stick pins in it it's um far far darker than that and um i would countenance great great care uh, in getting involved in that and i think also the fun the very fundamentalist faith that i met uh, and i'm talking about fundamental christianity fundamental islam any faith that had sort of gone down a literal interpretive route um i felt was in deep trouble um 
and really had very little to say to anyone who disagreed with them. Last year, you took part in another BBC Two programme called How mm. to Live a Simple Life, where you, yes. attempt, where you attempted to live without money. Was that easy, and do you think we will eventually live in a world without money? Um, <clears throat> it wasn't so much easy. It was just an incredible relief, an incredible relief not to have to carry you know, my wallet on my back essentially, and we don't know, I hadn't realized how heavy money is, and how, you know, metaphorically, and how much, how much weight we all carry around trying to service the needs of this thing which has grown into a monster. Um, and I had no idea of the enormous sense of freedom when, um, that I would feel having handed my wallet over. I think we're in. I think we're in real trouble with money at the moment. I think. Uh, I think we're. You know, we're, we really are um, approaching um, a very deep pit. Um, we cannot carry on living by the creed of more. Um, firstly, because more means more for some, and and sadly less for others. Um, but also because. This idea that more is going to make us happy is completely and utterly flawed and a completely, uh, it's a complete illusion, uh, which we've all bought into, sadly. Um, and so how we deal with that over the next hundred years, I think, is going to be very interesting because we cannot carry on um, as we are. Um, and I think, yes, in time, um, in time not to have not to have the ludicrous notion uh, which has just happened uh, of a coral reef or all the coral reefs in the world being valued at 200 million quid. You know, I mean, that to me is just repulsive uh, that we should actually equate the value of a coral reef in terms of, in terms of money. And if we cannot see the value of nature, the value of the natural world beyond some arbitrary figure that we might place on it, then we're in real trouble. And I think we're spiritually, I think that was indicative of, you know, spiritually how much trouble we're really in. Now, just recently last year, you, you brought out your latest book, Letters from an Extreme Pilgrim. Yeah. And, in, and in it, you write letters to different people in your life, such as your children, your parents, the Prime oh. Minister, God and <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah. Having read the book, I must say that you said in some what you said in some of your letters was like you were bearing your soul. How mm. difficult was it for you to write these letters in the first place? It wasn't really that difficult at all. I, I wrote that book when I was um, living in a cave in the Sinai Desert, and that degree of separation and, and going from a lush land of green and trees to a place where there where there is nothing where there is only rocks, your memory and your sense of self, and more importantly, your sense of others becomes very, very heightened. And um, so it wasn't a difficult book to write. Uh, it was an absolute joy to write and reconnect and ask the questions that I wanted to ask. Um, and But really, I think, what emerged as I was writing it was how other people, other human beings, 
and indeed our experience of the natural world, have largely made us what we are. And we tend to walk around in this bubble called, this bubble called self. But in fact, I am a collection of selves. I am a collection of all the influences that I've had, all the love that I've had, all the difficulties that I've faced through my relationships with other people. All of those things absorbed. And you know that collection of things is actually me. But on my own, I am nothing without those experiences. It's those experiences and those loves uh, that have made me, made me what I am. And so you have a much more, hopefully, a much more connected view of, of yourself uh, and much less of this view of every man as an island, uh, which I think is actually terribly depressing. Um, I don't think we're islands at all. I think we can be if, if that's how we want to live our lives, but I cannot think of anything more lonely. When you understand everything that you've been given by others, it something wonderful happens. So I noticed one of the letters, uh, as I understand it, was to, to Jim Morrison of The Doors. Yes. Um, what is it that attracts you to, to their music and to Jim Morrison in particular? I don't know. I mean, I first heard The Doors up in this top attic bedroom of a farmhouse when I was 13, and suddenly it, re- it just resonated. It, you know, his words, the music uh, of, of Ray Mantineau and just the whole band, and and, and what he was writing, the perspective that Jim Morrison wrote from, I think really, it it just, I loved I loved listening to it. I loved hearing him crying, and shouting, and and sort of expressing you know what he saw as beautiful. He wrote, as I said in the book, as a perspective, sort of separated, as if he'd been cast down onto this planet, without his consent, without. Um, agreeing to it, and he was telling us what he saw and what he found, and and where the contradictions were. Um, and I loved that sense of eternity um, that he manages to garner um, through his lyrics. And um, I could go on forever. So look, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> Get, getting back to the book, obviously the experience of actually being so in so remote a place must have had quite an effect on you. Would you say that was, was probably one of the, the special moments of your life, being in, in that cave, all isolated by yourself? Yes, I mean, that, that experience out of all the experiences I've had has changed me most profoundly. Um, and that's the place I go back to uh, when I'm saying my prayers. That's the place that I, that I find myself in time and time again. Um, it was an, an extraordinary experience. But look, it's not one that, you know, I, it's not one that was just for me. We can all do this. You know, it might not be something that we choose to do. But what is a month out of a life to actually go and sit, especially in midlife when we're sort of supposedly halfway through it? You know, to be able to go and take that time, it's, it's like being spiritually and mentally cleansed. Half of it's terrifying and half of it's utterly beautiful and revealing. And it's there that you find out essentially who you are and where where you are right now, uh, away from the hustle and bustle of our heads, away from the demands um, of the economic dictatorship that we live under. Um, 
it's an incredibly important thing for all of us to do. So getting back to the present, um, mm. you're currently a, a vicar, a parish priest of three different yeah. parishes in um, rural East, East Sussex. Yeah. Um, could you see, see yourself as staying there for many years or do you think you'll eventually move on somewhere else? I have no idea. I, I've, I've never been so happy uh, than where I am now. And occasionally as a parish priest, you know, you get lucky. It's just a good fit. And, and it, you know, just works intrinsically well. And I'm incredibly fortunate that I found a place where uh, it really works. And I love, I love being here and I love everything about it. And I, it's just a joy to, to get up in the morning, being here in the communities that I serve. Um, I'm, I absolutely love being here. And I'm not ambitious, you know, I can't think, um, I have no desire to be a bishop or, or anything like that. I think the greatest privilege uh, that as Christians we are given is, is, is to be able to practice our, our faith of love and to be a priest within that is an extraordinary privilege. Um, the, as each day passes, I see it more and more in those terms. Um, and that's where I am right now. What will happen? Um, what happens next week? Only next week knows. Okay. And obviously, being a Christian, and mm. there's so many different faiths and, uh, around, mm. what, what would you say? Because a lot of people say that there's a big awakening of spirituality generally, both yes. in this country and throughout the world. How do you see yes. that sort of going, panning out in the future? I agree that there is well, on, well, on, um, you know, on the edge of a very, very big awakening indeed. I think everything that I hear and everything that I read uh, sort of points to that um, that we're at the start of a process um, which um, will be very challenging uh, and incredibly exciting, and there'll be a lot of tears and. Um, you know, we've got to um, we've got to grow up. We've got to move forward. Uh, it's the calling of each generation. But I think because of our very precarious relationship with the moment, our perilous relationship with the moment, with this incredibly beautiful planet that we live on, you know, there needs to be a massive sea change. Not because we're all going to die unless there is, but because we can take a choice to live in a much more beautiful manner, in a much more harmonious manner, uh, rather than relying on science to come and sort out the problem of population and the problem of, of feeding so many people. We can say, no, actually, that's not how we want to be human. We're, we're all of us being given a choice now of how it is, you know, how we're going to take humanity forward, what, is, what it actually is to be human. And, and with, that, um, with that comes some very difficult questions, some very difficult times, but also um, that is part of a spiritual awakening. These, you know, these, these were questions that were being asked in the Axial Age. Uh, these were questions that were being asked at the Reformation. Um, and these are very, very important, important questions to answer. And we haven't actually answered them for a long time. You know, we've been so busy making money and flying to the moon and and doing, you know, doing a thousand things, we haven't actually sat down and said, you know, 
how are we to best represent what it is to be human? Are we going to fly off to Mars and, and take all the gold out and do all of that? Is, is, that, is, that, is that in some way being human? Or are we going to sort of learn to take care of our planet, learn to nurture what we have? Are we going to be tender-hearted? These are all you know, very important questions that we need to face and we need to ask, uh, answer. We haven't done so for a very long time. Right. Um, I've just got time for one more question. Mm. Have you got any more TV programs or books in the pipeline? Um, I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be some more television at some point. I mean, it's not something I go chasing after. Um, and I'm writing a. I'm writing. I'm currently in the middle of another book. So, um, yes, um, I'm meant to be writing, other than dreaming. <laughs> or maybe I'm meant to be doing both. Hey. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Peter, for agreeing to the interview and for all that you've said. It's been fascinating, and we wish no, you thank well. You. Thank, thank you very you much. Too. You too. Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks.